Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, world-renowned historian Professor Margaret McMillan talks about six months that changed the world, the Paris Peace Conference of 1917. The moderator is historian Professor Robert Gerwith, and the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 19th of October 2019. Good evening, everyone, um, and Margaret, uh, you're very welcome to the History Festival. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Um, I think what we're going to do for the next 45 minutes is to uh, obviously talk about your wonderful uh, book that covers the Paris Peace Conference, and we'll focus on a number of themes, if you like, uh, maybe starting with the observation that uh, obviously the Paris Peace Conference has, since 1919, often been blamed for many things that went wrong in world politics, uh, all the way from the rise of the Nazis through to uh, the Islamic State that often uh, refers back to many decisions that were uh, taken in uh, Paris in 1919. So your book obviously takes a more nuanced stance, a much more, um, shall we say, positive view of the uh, achievements, given the limitations, uh, of the key decision-makers in Paris. How did you arrive at that conclusion? I think I, I did it, and I, I want to say how pleased I am to be here. I mean, I'd love any excuse to come to Dublin, and of course, libraries are places that I've spent a great deal of my life and, and value enormously, so it's, it's a double pleasure. Um, I started to look at the Paris Peace Conference because I thought so many of the issues which were troubling our world had been dealt with there first. And there were so many extraordinary people there. It was an extraordinary event. I mean, we'll never have, I think, another international conference that, with people, the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Britain, the Prime Minister of Italy and France and so on. We'll never have another conference like that. You know, the G7 meets for two and a half days and usually falls to pieces and then they all go home. So I think it was an extraordinary event in itself. What... I found as I did my research, and I think we have to do this as historians, I started out with an idea. I thought this was a, an event which caused so much trouble that it led to the Second World War. And I think what we have to do as historians is follow the evidence where it leads us. And the more I read, the more I felt, and the more I researched, and I spent quite a few years doing this, the more I thought they were dealing with huge problems which perhaps nobody could solve, which is not to excuse them, but it's to understand them. And I think they did do their best, and it wasn't always good enough. But could anyone have done better? And I think one of the things we all need to do when we look at the past is to say, what would we have done? You know, it's very easy to look at what happened in the past, say, well, they made a mess of it, or they did this, or they should have done that. But we need to at least understand what the choices were they faced and what the constraints were they faced. We can't judge them, and we can't assume that they had a free hand we're trapped in our own times. There are certain things we can do and we can't do in our own times. And I think that was true of the people of 1919. And so I think we need to understand what it was they were dealing with, what the choices before them were, and how much power they actually had to, to affect events. And I think we also need to remember they didn't know how it was going to turn out. You know, we look back and we say, well, any fool could have seen that this was going to happen. You know, no, I don't think that's fair. And so I, I came to think that they were dealing with problems, some of which I think were intractable, um, not easily solved, we still haven't solved. And more and more, I think, the more I think about it today, I think that we still don't know very well how to end wars. It's not easy to end a war, particularly a long and difficult conflict. 
And so I think by the time I'd finished writing the book, I'd changed my views, which I think was all, I think that's what we should do as historians. We should be prepared to think about a subject and, and change our minds because we are learning more about it as we go along. Mm-hmm. Well, I always thought that one of the uh, key issues for the, for the peacemakers in Paris was the enormous expectations that were harbored yeah. by populations yeah. in every country that was yeah. um, a combatant in the First World yeah. War. So perhaps for the, um, the benefit of the audience, we can unpack that a little bit and talk about the different expectations that the key uh, players in Paris yeah. uh, came to France with. Yeah. So uh, starting maybe with Wilson. Yeah. Well, and, and perhaps I can say something also about their publics, because the First World War had been such a shock and such a catastrophic event. And it wasn't that Europe hadn't had wars before. Goodness knows they'd, they'd had many and dreadful wars through, through their long history. But the First World War came at the end of a century when Europe thought we're really moving on and we're changing and we're progressing and we're becoming more civilized. And it was an extraordinary century. I mean, Europe actually had very few wars in the 19th century by comparison with all the other centuries that it's gone through. And it had had enormous political and economic progress and, and social progress. I mean, yes, it had lots of strains, but people living in 1914 could look back and say, we are so different from 1814. You know, things have changed so much. And so I think there was a feeling that this war was, was a dreadful shock enormously costly. I mean, in terms of human life, we, at least nine million men died. We don't know how many civilians died because of starvation and, and you know, disease, which might have been prevented otherwise. It shattered European political and social and, and economic structures. And so I think what you got was a sense that something better must come out of this. I mean, the, the, the very greatness of the catastrophe, I think, raised the expectations that it had to be worth it. And then you got, of course, the different political leaders who, I think, shared that. I mean, I think there's a view, which I think is wrong, that Woodrow Wilson was the only one who had the decency to think of a better world, that he came across the Atlantic with this vision, and there he was met by these black-hearted Europeans who sneered and laughed at it. And that's not true. I mean, a lot of the European leaders felt exactly the same. And they had been talking, even before the war, about new ways of dealing with international relations and, and ways of disarming and stopping arms races. And so, yes, I think you did have that sense among the leaders. But what, of course, they also were doing was representing their own countries. And wartime coalitions usually fall to pieces as peace comes because each country begins to think of itself. It's, it, you know, they're bound to. They think of their own needs and their own, uh, own goals. And that was true of the First World War. You, you come together for a great purpose to avoid defeat or to, to win victory. And when that is achieved, you begin to think of what next? And so, yes, the British and the French had very different. The British and French were two of the major powers at the conference, and they had very different views of what they wanted. The French were a land-based power, and they always had to be conscious that they had neighbors mm-hmm. on the land, on their borders, who didn't wish them well, particularly, of course, the new state of Germany. And what worried the French, and I think they had every reason to be worried, was that Germany was bigger, more prosperous, and had more people. And that was going to go on. That wasn't going to change. In fact, French women and the French government, as you know, worried about this. French women were not producing enough future soldiers whereas German women were. I mean, the demographic gap was growing between Germany and France, and that worried French planners. They looked ahead and saw a much stronger Germany. And so what they wanted was security on land, and they wanted some assurance that Germany would not invade them yet again. And of course, Georges Clemenceau, the French prime minister, had been a young man in 1870 when the Germans' confederation had invaded France. He had become prime minister in the Second World War when a great deal of French soil was occupied. And so I think from the French point of view, security... Was, was paramount. 
For the British, being an island and with their, as we know, complicated relationship to the rest of Europe, for the British, I think there was a moment when they were beginning to turn away yet again and think of their empire and think of their worldwide interests. And they, in a sense, had already achieved a lot of what they wanted by the time the conference opened, because what they'd worried about was German naval power. And they had the German Navy in their possession. They had the German submarine fleet at Harwich, and they had the German surface fleet in Scapa Flow. And so they destroyed, effectively, German naval power, which had caused such concern before the war. And they had taken the German colonies, or the bits of their empire had taken the German colonies, so they had what they wanted. And so they were less inclined to, to share the views of the French. They had other things to think about. And then you had the United States, which came in to European affairs saying, we don't want anything for ourselves. Woodrow Wilson said this very explicitly. We simply are coming to make the world safe for democracy and so on. But of course the United States wanted things. It wanted recognition of its newfound power, its economic power, its fiscal power, its military power. It wanted to make sure that it was dominant in the Americas. It was increasingly interested in the Pacific. And so what you got at Paris, I think, was this very tricky combination of huge expectations from the publics, a sense that they wanted a better world, but of course they also wanted someone to be punished. You know, someone must be to blame for this dreadful catastrophe. And then you get national interests coming out, as they are bound to do. And so you have very real strains among those making peace, although they worked with each other. And then, of course, they had this huge range of problems to deal with. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, many things that I think are so outstanding about the book is uh, that you remind us that the Paris peace treaties were not just about Versailles. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the German question takes center stage in the deliberations. Nonetheless, there are also peace treaties with German Austria, uh, with Hungary, with Bulgaria, uh, two, in fact, with Turkey, uh, or the Ottoman Empire still at the time, and they often get overlooked. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah. Is that um, something that we need to blame John Maynard Keynes for? I think possibly partly. I mean, I think we've, we've all tended to focus on the German treaty, partly because it's seen as being responsible for the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. I mean, you know more about that than I do. When we, you know, I think we, we agree that there's more to the rise of Hitler and the Nazis in the Treaty of Versailles, um, partly because Germany was going to be in a position to start. Second World War, and so I think that has been important. But you're right, I mean, the long-term consequences of what happened in Paris are not just about Germany. Um, it, Paris saw the winding up of the Ottoman Empire, huge multinational empire which had dominated until the 19th century a lot of Europe and had continued to dominate a lot of the Middle East, and we're still living with the consequences of that winding up and carving up of the Ottoman Empire. Bulgaria became much smaller, um, That perhaps has had, certainly had an impact in, in the 20s and 30s and in the, in the reasons why Bulgaria got involved in the Second World War. The Treaty of Trianon with Hungary, if you go to Hungary, every school child knows about it. They learn about it in school. It is something that is deeply burnt into Hungarian consciousness. And the present Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has not been shy about using it. Um, you're talking about the injustice of the Treaty of Trianon. I mean, Hungary lost more of its landmass than any of the other European powers, and most of it in, in the shape of Transylvania, and, and the Hungarians have not forgotten it. And I see it as a possible tension point in Europe, particularly if, if demagogic politicians will use it. So, no, I quite agree. And I think what also happened in Paris is a number of international agreements were made. I mean, they weren't as dramatic, but agreements were made on international aviation, for example. It was the first time we had 
agreements on how international aviation should operate. We got agreements on, it, on the management of international waterways, um, rivers, canals, straits. Uh, we also got, of course, the setting up of the League of Nations. And so a great deal happened in Paris. And it, is, it seems to me curious we focus just on the Treaty of Versailles. I think we need to remember that so much else was happening that affected the, the world. Mm-hmm. Actually, by, by adopting this... Um, comparative perspective or inclusive perspective that allows us to also talk about the other uh, very important peace treaties, it struck me that um, to a certain extent the Versailles Treaty is perhaps the most lenient, um, which might surprise a couple of people. Um, But it's actually not that surprising, given that Germany was Britain's most important European trading partner before the war, and Britain had relatively little interest in completely destroying Germany, leaving it to a potential uh, Bolshevik revolution. Even uh, considering the very significant territorial losses, um, actually, if you compare it relative to size, Britain loses more territory uh, because of the what is today the uh, Republic of Ireland, uh, as a result of the First World War, than Germany does. Yeah. No, I think that the Treaty of Versailles. I think uh, it was a French uh, commentator who said the trouble is it's neither harsh enough nor soft enough. You know, it was somewhere in between, and the Germans felt it was totally unreasonable. But the Germans' expectations of what the treaty was going to be like, I think, were completely unrealistic. I mean, they had lost the war, and this, of course, is something that, as time went by, um, Germans across the political spectrum, with, I think, a good deal of help from the the German Supreme Command, the German High Command, came to ignore. I mean, if you look at what happened on the battlefields in the summer of 1918, it was a defeat. And the terms of the armistice are a surrender. I mean, they surrender not just their fleets, they surrender all their heavy equipment, they surrender their air force. I mean, they are basically done. And that is something that, that gradually people began to forget. And, and the argument, which you know very well, was that the Germans hadn't lost on the battlefield. They'd been stabbed in the back at home by various sorts of traitors. And so you get a sense in Germany that we hadn't lost, therefore we shouldn't have paid any penalty. And I think there was also a very unrealistic expectation, which was fueled really by Woodrow Wilson, the American president, who spoke directly to the German people and said, I want a peace without retribution, without vengeance. Um, I, you know, I, I, we won't have any. You know, we won't have the sort of retributive pieces of the past. And he also talked to them about how they should become a republic, which in fact they did. And so you've got people in Germany saying, "Well, we've done what he asked. You know, we've become a republic. We're different. Why should we pay a penalty for the sins of the old regime? And we're going to be treated fairly." And so, I think the Germans wouldn't have liked any treaty. I mean, I think if you, you know, if you go to court in a dispute and you lose, you don't say the judge was absolutely fair, I should have lost. You know, you tend to say the judge was biased, you know, this was unfair, you know, and I think the Germans didn't think they'd lost and increasingly they came to think they hadn't started the war and so they felt the treaty was, was deeply unfair. I mean, I don't think it was that unfair. I don't think it was as punitive as the treaty that the Germans imposed on Paris in 1871, and it certainly wasn't as punitive as the treaty that the Germans imposed on the Russians in, 18, in 1918 at the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. But perception is very important, and I think a lot of people in Germany just felt it was unfair for, 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 these, for these, these sorts of reasons. And so the treaty was deeply resented. What I always find so interesting is if you look at what happened to Germany in 1945, when the Allies, of course, had a policy of unconditional surrender. They, they wanted no doubt this time about who had lost and who had won. Germany was not only defeated, it was occupied. 
which hadn't happened in the First World War. Very few Germans saw occupying troops in the First World War, only in the Rhineland, I think. And so you had a Germany in 1945 that was absolutely devastated, occupied, um, did have to pay reparations. The Russians took whatever they could get out of their zone, um, laid waste. The same thing was true of Japan. And yet we don't hear people saying that was so unfair. It's very interesting. I mean, I do think how we perceive things matters hugely in human history. And I think the perception in Germany was we were treated unfairly and the treaty was unjust. And if you think the treaty is unjust, then you don't have any compunction to try and, and obey it. And I think everybody knew in Germany that Germany was in fact building military things it shouldn't have been building. Mm -hmm. And there were jokes about it in the cabarets in Berlin, but there was no will in Germany to accept the terms of those treaty. And I think that was part of the problem. Yeah, I think this, this important point brings us back to the revolution of expectation to a certain uh, extent. Then, yeah. um, precisely after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, after Russia had been kicked out of the war, uh, there was a, a general sense within the German elites that uh, Germany was actually winning that war. Yeah. Uh, all the way through to the failure of the spring offensives. Yeah. Uh, and then, just a couple of months later, you have the news breaking that Germany has lost the war. Yeah. And at that time, of course, not a single enemy soldier stands on German yeah. soil. So that makes these mythical narratives, which are wrong, but the narratives about a stab in the back much more plausible from yeah. the perspective of yeah. a receptive nationalist audience. Yeah. Um, and to a certain extent, I, I mean, I would entirely agree with you that the debates that were being had among allied generals at the time. General Pershing, for example, is pushing for an occupation. Yeah. He wants to go all the way to Berlin. That uh, if that had been agreed on, it probably would have saved a lot of trouble uh, subsequently. Um, but of course, both the British and the French um, politicians knew that they couldn't sell this to the public. Yeah. Continuation of the war yeah. that probably would have cost lots of yeah. lives. Yeah. They, I think they felt they couldn't fight on. I mean, I think they, they, they had already lost so many men in the war and I think they felt they had got victory and that they didn't want to. I mean, Marshal Foch, who was the Supreme Allied Commander, said, you know, if we go into Germany, we will probably have to fight village to village, town to town, house to house. And he was probably right. I mean, if you think what happened in the Second World War, that is exactly what happened. And he said, if we've already got victory, although he was, of course, extremely concerned about future German power, but he said, we've won this war. Um, why do we need to go on? And I think that was certainly the feeling among the European allies. There was also a feeling among the European allies that if we fight on into 1919, the Americans will be that much more powerful and they will try and dictate the peace, and we don't want that. Mm -hmm. So I think there are two reasons, really. One, they want to spare any more loss of lives, and I think their publics would have found it very difficult to understand why they were fighting on. But I think you're absolutely right about the Germans, not, you know, the German public, and indeed the German civilian government thought they were winning, because the high command basically kept it from them. You know, Ludendorff had that series of, of offensives in the spring of 1918, and he promised them victory. What we now know, and of course this is what history does do, you, you find out afterwards, we now know that the German commanders in the fields were desperately worried, their, their, their units were under strength, they were getting increasingly soldiers who were overage or underage, you know, they, they were really bringing in people who weren't easily adapting to being, you know, 17-year-old boys or 45-year-old men coming in. And they were running short of things like aviation fuel. They were running short of all the equipment they needed. I mean, they are desperate. You can see. I mean, we, it, later on, it became clear that the, the field commanders were sending desperate requests up to the high command saying, we cannot go on. 
But the, 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 high, the, the civilians didn't know this, including the civilian government. And suddenly in September 1918, Ludendorff and Hindenburg say to, to the civilian government, you have to get, get, get a, you must get an armistice immediately. We can't go on. And Ludendorff, who then behaves disgracefully in my view, um, scuttles away wearing false whiskers and, and dark glasses and a sombrero, had put some hat pulled down to, to Stockholm, um, avoiding all responsibility for defeat, is then, of course, going to come back and say, oh, I told them they could have fought on. I mean, it, it, it is, you know, the, the capacity of people to tell lies and, well, and, <coughs> and have them believed. I mean, I think you have a very good example in the German high command and, and this pernicious story they put out that we were stabbed in the back by traitors and the traitors were left-wingers, liberals and Jews. It was to be poisonous for, for the Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the Ottoman case, because I think it's a fascinating one, and one that is also very topical, obviously, the Kurdish questions back on the political uh, agenda. Um, And uh, the Ottoman Empire, of course, also signed two peace treaties. Uh, Mm. The first one, extremely harsh, um, essentially dismantling the Ottoman Empire, including uh, the Anatolian rump state, the Turkish state. Uh, whereas the second one actually turns the Treaty of Lausanne, uh, turns Turkey into a winner of the First mm. World War. So how did that happen? Well, what the, f- the first treaty was signed appropriately enough, actually. All these treaties were signed in suburbs of Paris, and the, and the, the treaty with Turkey was signed in the showroom of the Sevres porcelain factory, which is quite fragile porcelain. And if you drop it, it breaks. Um, and I think it's quite symbolically nice that it, this was the Turkish treaty. And it was signed with the Ottoman Empire, with the Ottoman rulers, who were basically on their way out. You know, they had run out of steam. The last Ottoman ruler was a sort of rather sad old man who you know, was no chip off the block of the great Solomon the Magnificent. And so you had a failing empire. And the Allies thought, we can just dispose of it as we will. I mean, I think the European Allies, and I think Woodrow Wilson was the same, saw the Ottomans as lesser peoples. You know, they were 19th century imperialists in, in some ways, Lloyd George and Clemenceau, and they thought these people will just be carved up like we carved up Africa. And so you're right, they dismembered the Ottoman Empire. What they hadn't counted on was Turkish nationalism, because at the core of the Ottoman Empire was Turkish people. And they were beginning to mobilize themselves. And Mustafa Kemal, who later on be- became known as Ataturk, had gone to the interior of Anatolia in 1919, very distinguished army officer and was beginning to build an army. And this was going to be the force that was going to make it impossible for the Allies to impose their treaty. It was basically a dead letter. It was a treaty signed with a failing government. And in the meantime, this new force was rising in the Anatolian plains, formidable fighting force, which was going to in turn um, defeat or come to terms with the Russians, the French, and then the British. And so the second treaty was signed with a triumphant Turkish force, And it was signed at Lausanne, and it it created the modern state of Turkey. And it was, I think, the only example of where those peoples who were being parceled out actually pulled themselves together and said, no, this is not going to happen. And the Allies were forced to concede because there was simply nothing they could do about it. Mm -hmm. Staying in the region, um, one of the contemporary, still contemporary, and current accusations uh, against the peacemakers is, of course, that they carved up the Middle East or created the Middle East in its current form with its very just in case that you ever wondered why the borders were so straight, they were literally drawn uh, with a ruler um, in in Paris, and that many of the conflicts which we've seen over the following hundred years stem from that moment. 
and broken promises. Yeah, I think they do and they don't. Um, I think, of course, those arrangements are going to matter. And, and what was going to matter is, is the way in which those arrangements came about. Because the British, the French, and, and during the war, the Italians and the Russians also joined in, but they would not didn't count by the end of the war. It was really the British and the French made a secret agreement, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, to divide up the Middle East to suit themselves, thinking that no one there would have any views on it. You know, they, they simply didn't believe that people living there had any ideas about how they'd like to be ruled, which was wrong. I mean, you were beginning to get Arab nationalism developing. You'll get at very early stages of Kurdish nationalism. But there were things happening in the Middle East which were not going to make it possible just to assume that they'd all do what they were told. And then, of course, they made a promise to the Arabs um, that if they rose up against the Turks, they would have an independent Arab state, and then the borders of that were going to be very controversial. And the, the, these were conflicting promises. And then, of course, the third promise was the promise to the World Zionist Organization that there would be a Jew Jewish homeland in Palestine. And so three sets of promises were made which were incompatible, which have led, I think, rightly, to a deep sense of resentment in the Middle East that the we were parceled out and we, our land was handed away and no one consulted us. And of course, it's led to the establishment in the, in the longer term of the state of Israel, which it is possible could have become part of the Middle East, but at the moment, relations with its neighbors are, are not all that good. And so it, it has helped. Those decisions made in 1919 and immediately after have helped to shape the Middle East. On the other hand, I think it's possible to argue that for all the mistakes that the foreign powers made, and I think they did, it is possible to imagine that those countries might have become viable. Jordan has survived, and so you know, up into the present does work as a country. Syria was, there was a sort of Syria. Um, there, were, there, were, there were provinces, there was a province of the Ottoman Empire, but what the French did was take part of it and incorporate it into Lebanon to make a greater Lebanon. That is one of the reasons why you've continued to have such problems between Lebanon and Syria. Iraq was taken out of, made out of three provinces of the Ottoman Empire. And its borders actually are those pretty much, I think, of the old Ottoman provinces. And I've always thought Iraq had a possibility, and, and historians of Iraq I've, I've read have said, you know, there was a chance that Iraq could have become a viable country. And my own country to Canada, Canada is a very artificial country. Our borders are ridiculous. You know, they're straight lines or rivers. Um, and we were thrown together out of disparate peoples, but somehow we managed to make a country. And I think that was possible in Iraq. And, and you've got the emergence in the 20s and 30s of political forces, mostly middle-class parties, but nevertheless important, saying we are Iraqi. And to be Iraqi, you can be Shi, you can be Sunni, you can be Kurd, you can be Assyrian, you can be... Persian, you can be Arab, but you're Iraqi. Mm -hmm. And I think if Iraq had had different leadership, if it had had more time, if it had perhaps been in a better neighborhood, it might have developed into a viable country. And what I find interesting about Iraq today, there still is a sense that people don't want it to break up totally, you know, for all its troubles. And the same thing with Lebanon. Lebanon went through a long civil war, but there still is a sense of something called Lebanon. Sorry, this is digressing, but I think some of what went wrong in the Middle East, yes, was the result of those arrangements at the end of the war. Some of it has gone wrong since because of local leadership. And I think there is a tendency, which I don't think is good in the Middle East, to blame everything on what happened 100 or so years ago. And that seems to be letting off the hook some of their own leaders and some of their own political forces. And, and I think it's not, in the longer run, I think people in the Middle East, and goodness knows it's difficult, but I think they have got to I hope, find the ability to take responsibility for themselves. I mean, the, the trouble is, of course, where they are. Geographically, they, they have been and, and I think will continue to be 
pressured by outside forces who have their own reasons wanting to meddle. Mm -hmm. But certainly what happened in, in Paris and subsequently contributed to, to some of the ongoing troubles in the Middle East. Well, here again, I think, um, I mean, perceptions obviously matter. Yeah. It's remarkable, the, the longevity of these perceptions. When uh, you recall, you know, during um, the high point of, of ISIS, the Islamic State, um, it was repeatedly uh, suggested that their ultimate objective is the revocation of Sykes-Picot yeah. and the restoration of the Caliphate. Yeah. Uh, two things that obviously um, disappeared, or the treaty was, the, the agreement was made in 1916 and the, the Caliphate disappeared yeah. in the wake of the defeat of the Ottoman uh, Empire. So it's remarkable how present this period yeah. is in the public yeah. consciousness when you ask anyone in the street or in a school yeah. in uh, anywhere in the Middle East, they will know what Sykes-Picot yeah. is, whereas people in the West probably don't necessarily. No, we, we've had to learn about it all over yeah. again, I think. And, and, um, well, and I think history is enormously important. It's, it's important because of what it did to cause the consequences which we're still living with, but it's also important because of those who use it. And I think the fact that ISIS or Daesh picked on Sykes-Picot helped to give it more prominence. I mean, there are many other things they could have picked on. They also did pick on the Crusades as, as you know, demonstrating the, the antipathy of the West towards the Muslim world. But history can be used, as we know, by political leaders, often to mobilize people, to, to give them a particular view of the world, and, and to promise them a, a particular future. And you have the same, and we, you know, the, when, when Bosnia broke up, the same sort of thing was happening. People were mobilizing the history of the Balkans in particular ways. And I think as historians, <coughs> our job is to say that what you're doing is, is, is very one-sided. It's often not entirely accurate. But history can be a very powerful force, mm -hmm. I think. And I think what's happening in the Middle East shows that. I was actually going to move to the next uh, troubled spot, um, yeah. Yugoslavia or ex-Yugoslavia, uh, because in the 1990s, during the very violent uh, breakup of that state created uh, in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, uh, a Swiss historian once quipped that Europe had somehow come to terms with the very difficult legacies of the Second World War, was, was st still struggling uh, with the legacies of the First. And of course, Yugoslavia is, is, is one of those to a certain extent. Uh, Ukraine would be another example, a state that first became independent in 1918, mm. uh, only to have its independence taken away again by Russia, which I think to a certain extent explains many of the tensions um, mm. in the relationship between uh, the two states. Do you think that con line of continuity is overdone or do you see a point to that? Um, I think if you've had independence, it becomes something that you, you, you remember and you regret if you are a nationalist movement. I mean, I think in Catalonia today, there is an attempt to argue there was an independent Catalan kingdom, which is very dubious, I think. Mm -hmm. But it is something that, that people do use history as, as a way of identifying themselves and, and making claims to things. And Yugoslavia, I think the history of Yugoslavia is very interesting because it came together at the end of the First World War. It's, it's often said that it was created in Paris, and it wasn't. It created itself on the ground. Basically, what the state's men, they were men mostly, in Paris did was simply recognize the, the borders and make some adjustments. But it came together because Serbia was on the winning side, Croatia and Slovenia were on the losing side. And both the Croats and Slovenes actually wondered what they would do. They were suddenly left adrift because the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had disappeared. And there was talk, I think, I think it was Slovenia, actually wrote to the British government and said, do you have a spare prince we could have? And... The British government said no, yeah. 
And so Slovenia and, and Croatia thought, well, we, you know, we're small countries struggling. We would probably be better off in a federation with Serbia. And they did all speak the same language, even though they used different scripts. And then there was some cultural, you know, even though you know, the, the Croatians and Slovenians tend to be Catholic and, and the, 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 the Serbs tend to be Orthodox, but nevertheless, there, there were commonalities enough to think of building a nation. And what went wrong there, really, I think, was that the Serbs didn't see it that way. They didn't see it to, as a coming together of autonomous units freely. They saw it as Serbia growing. And the king of Serbia became the king of Yugoslavia. The army of Serbia became the army of Yugoslavia, pretty much. And the bureaucracy of Serbia became the bureaucracy of Yugoslavia. And so I think the component parts, and, and Montenegro was going to join in as well, really felt themselves to be second-class citizens and, and being pushed around by, by the Serbians. And that was also going to be the problem in the state that emerged at the end of the Second World War. You know, there, was a, a, there were deep um, resentments among the different peoples, even though they had many commonalities. But again, I think, you know, human agency matters. I mean, I think what happened in Yugoslavia after the Second World War, and particularly after the end of the Cold War, was, was fueled by ambitious politicians who, for their own reasons, wanted to break it up. You know, and, and I think one of the tragedies of Yugoslavia was that if time had gone by, enough time had gone by, it might have become more coherent as a state. I mean, they were doing censuses, I think, every 10 years, and more and more the younger generation were describing themselves as Yugoslav, mm -hmm. not Serb, not Croat, not Slovene, not Montenegrin. But the breakup of Yugoslavia, of course, put an end to that. I think you're actually touching on a very important point here. Um, by the time that the peacemakers meet in Paris, many of the territorial decisions have already been made yeah. on the ground. Yeah. Uh, because the Western Allies don't have any troops yeah. in these vast lands between yeah. Berlin and St. Petersburg. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's very difficult to stop armed groups that view themselves as the new national yeah. armies, yeah. Uh, to stop them yeah. physically from creating new states. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and this is one of the things I came to realize when I looked at the Paris Peace Conference, is the question of power. Now, these are the leaders of the most powerful nations in the world, but can they actually project it? You know, it's all, and I think the United States, in a way, is realizing this. It's all very well to say, we are the most powerful nation in the world. You, 12,000 miles away, will do what we tell you. Well, it was even more difficult in those days. This was before mass air transportation. And so how do you actually get at these parts of the world that you want to calm down? I mean, you, the British talked about going into Anatolia to try and deal with Ataturk. There were almost no railways. The, what ports would they have used? How would they have got there? And there's a wonderful, there's a moment in, in the, one of the, the meetings of the big three, Wilson, Clemenceau, and Lloyd George, and someone says, you know, the, the Czechs and the Poles are fighting each other. And you're quite right. Poland emerged because the Poles made it emerge. And Czechoslovakia emerged on the map because the Czechs and Slo well, the Czechs more or less took over the Slovaks rather like the Serbs did with, with the other South, South Slavs. But there's a moment where I think it's Czechoslovakia and Poland are fighting over a disputed bit of territory between them. And the council of the powers in Paris say, we've got to stop this. And they call in Marshal Foch and say, you know, you've got to get troops over there and stop them. And he says, absolutely, of course, I always obey orders, but I'd like to point out, and then he basically says, I can't do it. Mm. You know, the railways are in a mess. Um, the rolling stock is gone. Um, bridges have been blown up. There's no way I can get to the interior of Europe. And Lloyd George, the British prime minister, was always optimistic, said, I have a plan. And they all turned to him with a certain amount of relief. And he said, we will send both sides very strong telegrams. <laughs> so, you know, but it, I think it gives an indication of the limits of power, sure, yeah. you know, and, and things were happening on the ground. And, and we tend to think 
that the First World War ended on November the 11th, 1918. Well, it, it did and it didn't. Fighting went on in the center of Europe, in lots of the Middle East, in the Caucasus, until the mid-1920s. And an awful lot of people were going to be killed and a lot, a lot of misery was going to take place. Mm-hmm. Well, as our audience sees, uh, Margaret is dealing with an immensely uh, complex topic. And to make it even more complicated, I would like, before we open uh, to the floor, uh, like to talk about the global dimension of your book. Because there are various interesting people popping up in Paris in 1919 uh, who will shape yeah. the second half of the 20th yeah. century. Yeah. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, I was. I found that's one of the things I found so interesting about it. And I, I'm, you're probably not this sort of historian, but I'm the sort of historian who's a bit of a gossip <laughs> and loves the details. And so, who was there? Well, the famous Article 231, which provided the basis for German reparations in the Treaty of Versailles, was written by a young American lawyer called John Foster Dulles, who later on became Secretary of State in, in the um, Eisenhower administration. Um, Franklin Roosevelt was there as Assistant Secretary of the Navy for a brief period. Um, a future Foreign Minister of Japan and Prime Minister of Japan were there as part of the Japanese delegation. And of course, there was this man, the story we think is true, who was working possibly as a waiter at the Ritz Hotel, who came from a small part of the French Empire in Asia, Indochina. And he presented a petition, he and his fellow nationalists presented a drop a petition in French to present to the peace conference. And I think he even hired proper clothes, it was a formal dress to go. And it, as far as we know, the petition never got to anyone. And, and he later on became known as Ho Chi Minh and led Vietnam to independence against the French and, and then, of course, against the Americans. And so there were a number of people there who were going to be figures later on, and, and some of them were radicalized by what happened in Paris. I mean, I think there was a hope in the non-European parts of the world that Woodrow Wilson, the promise of a League of Nations, the promise of a fairer world, would mean more independence, more autonomy for Africans, for Asians, for, for peoples around the world. And I think a lot of those hopes are going to be dashed. And this was going to have a very important effect mm-hmm. later on. Um, Zhou Enlai, later on Chinese Foreign Minister under Mao, was there um, working with... There were a lot of Chinese workers in France who'd been brought over to work on the trenches. And Zhou Enlai was there working with some of those Chinese laborers. And he was going to, I think, encounter communism for the first time in Paris. So there were, quite, there were some extraordinary people there and, and people who were prominent in the 19th century and also people who are going to be prominent in the 20th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, our colleague, uh, Eris Manila, fellow historian, has oh, yeah. described this as a uh, Wilsonian moment, yeah. that around the globe, nascent independence movements yeah. uh, were inspired by yeah. Wilson's promise of yeah. self-determination, yeah. Uh, by which he meant something very different. And he yeah. certainly had very much Europe in yeah. mind when he articulated yeah. this. But nonetheless, he was uh, welcomed and celebrated around the world yeah. as a sort of saint-like figure who would bring... Yeah post-colonial independence, or at least no. far-reaching autonomy rights to uh, most of the world. Yeah. No, I think Wilson was, was a wonderful orator, and he had a way of expressing himself, and he took ideas that had been around. I mean, most of the ideas that went into his proposal for the League of Nations came from Europeans. Um, in fact, the draft which Wilson based his proposal for the League on in 1919 was, was drawn up by General Smuts. 
who's the South African who'd become a member of the British cabinet. So, you know, this was truly an international moment. But I think Wilson came to stand for it. And I think it was partly because of his eloquence and because of his ways of expressing himself. And he was seen around the world. I mean, it's said that a, a Kurdish leader carried a sort of, uh, as a good luck amulet sewn into his sleeve, a copy of the 14 points, which were Wilson's, one of Wilson's speeches in, in, 19, uh, in 1917, where he outlined how he saw the League of Nations developing. And the notion of self-determination, of course, was something that, as you say, was very fuzzy when Wilson talked about it. Um, he seems to have thought that it didn't mean full independence, it could mean just self-government. And there's a very interesting moment when representatives of the Irish nationalists come to his office in Paris and want to see him, and he refuses to meet them. He said, you already have self-government, you already have self-determination, um, work through the British institutions, work through Parliament, which I, I think gives a sense of the limits he saw on it. But People took it as meaning, yes, we will run our own affairs and be independent. Self-determination was enormously powerful. And it came at a time when you already had nationalist movements developing in a number of the European colonies. I mean, in India, there was a very well-founded Indian nationalist movement. Gandhi had come back from South Africa and had turned what was a middle-class movement into a mass movement. And in Egypt, you had a mass nationalist movement, um, the Waft, and you were getting nationalist movements developing elsewhere in Indochina and, and beginnings in Africa as well, and certainly in, in North Africa and in, in the French colonies. And so to have the president of this new country, it wasn't yet the superpower, but it was a powerful country, saying, I think self-determination is a good thing, was enormously encouraging. And I think Eris Manella is right in that, that it gave encouragement and gave hope to peoples who were already beginning to think in these terms, but to have someone like that say it made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Let us, last but not least, talk briefly about two victor states of the First World War who very quickly fell out with their fellow allies, uh, Japan and, uh, more famously, Italy, of yeah. course, with terrible consequences. Um, at the beginning of the Paris Peace Conference, uh, they were basically sitting at the negotiation yeah. table, again, full of expectations for a better yeah. future and for the spoils of victory. But very quickly, there was a falling out. Yeah. Can you remind us what this was all about? Well, the Italians came into the war partway through, and it, the Italians actually were out, well, they were in, an, in alliance with Austria-Hungary and Germany and managed not to enter the First World War. The, Italy itself was very divided. I mean, it was, it was a new country. Um, it's, it's newer than my own country of Canada. It's, it's, it, and it was divided socially, economically, divided between the North and the South, but it was also divided on which side it wanted to be on. Um, you know, the Italians had no love for the Austrians who had been an enemy, but quite a lot of Italians admired Germany and, and they didn't have particular enthusiasm for the French who they'd also saw as, as, as a country which had invaded them before. And so I think there was division in Italy, but there was a strong liberal internationalist view in Italy that the Italians should join the war. In the end, I think, the government joined the war both because there was some public sentiment in favor of joining on the side of the British and the French, but also because at least the political leaders and, and opinion makers saw it as a chance for Italy to complete its national project. I mean, it was in, a, in some ways, Italy went into the war out of 19th century motives. It was a war to gain territory, and they had very specific territorial aims. They wanted to complete their borders up in the north, up to the, the line of the Alps. Um, and they wanted to go over into the east a bit. And so for Italy, it was a calculation. There was some idealism in it, but 
it, Italy was not prepared for the war, and the war brought out, I think, even more the divisions in Italian society. And, and the management of the war by the senior generals, I mean, the, the incompetence, it wasn't, I mean, the Italian soldiers were very good and very brave, but the incompetence of some of the senior command and the lack of provisions, and they were sending them up hill in the Alps to take on well-defended Austrian positions without proper artillery, without proper equipment, without proper wire cutters even. At one point, you know, the, the Italian officers on the, on the front line said, we need wire cutters. You can't attack trenches through barbed wire without wire cutters. Then one of the senior generals said, oh, tell them to bite it, bite the wire through. You know, it was, it was appalling. And so I think Italy came out of the war deeply divided. Um, there was a lot of revolutionary fervor, particularly in the big industrial cities of the north. I mean, Mussolini actually started out as a revolutionary socialist. And you had a lot of sort of frustrated nationalism. And so what the Italians at the peace conference wanted, I mean, they're like everyone, their the demands had expanded during the war, and they began, to, they began to set their eyes on a large chunk of what was going to become Yugoslavia, which was rather tricky. And um, this caused, and the Allies would, would accept some of, but not all of their territorial demands. And so the Italians came out feeling they hadn't really got what they wanted. They'd paid a terrible price, and they called the peace the mutilated peace. And Mussolini made great play with this. He appealed to frustrated Italian nationalism and, and appealed to the real revolutionary fervor within Italy and, and of course, seized power in 1922 with, with long-term disastrous consequences. Although in the 1920s, he continued to cooperate with the British and French, but he clearly was moving in a different direction. The Japanese were a very new power in the world and they had very successfully modernized themselves in the 1860s and 70s in the face of Western challenge and had become a major Pacific power. And the British had signed their first peacetime treaty with the, with the Japanese in the Anglo-Japanese Anglo -Japanese Naval Treaty of 1902. So the Japanese were accepted as a world power, but they had a sneaking suspicion they weren't treated as an equal. And too many countries, the United States, Australia, South Africa, um, even my own country, Canada, had Asian exclusion laws and so the Japanese were being treated as a world power, but their citizens were not being let into certain countries. And I think this was deeply resented in Japan. Nevertheless, the Japanese wanted, at least the, the government and the ruling classes, and I think a lot of public opinion, wanted to participate in the international order in the 1920s, wanted to become a member of the League. But I think what they many people in Japan concluded is no matter what we do, they'll never treat us as equals. And there was a big debate at Paris about putting a clause in the covenant of the League of Nations that essentially would have, um, it, it, there was a clause about um, not discriminating against people on the basis of religion. And what the Japanese wanted to do is add nationality. It came to be called the racial equality clause, um, slightly misleadingly. And the Japanese didn't get this. And I think that really affected long-term opinion in Japan. You know, they want us, they were quite happy to have the Japanese Navy patrolling the Mediterranean on the Allied side in the First World War. They were quite happy to have us fighting in the Pacific. They will not treat us as equals. And that, I think, was going to fuel into Japanese nationalism and, and help to push Japan in its particular path by the, by the 1930s. They're very important developments, I think. It is indeed, and I think just to very briefly add to that, uh, because it's often uh, interpreted as a simple sort of black and white story where the Western allies are terribly mean to Japan. But what Japan, of course, has in mind is racial equality for Japan. Yeah. Uh, and it wants to use that to justify its incursions into China, yeah. uh, essentially being the Western state in, in Asia. Yeah. 
therefore the dominant imperial power. Yeah. Uh, mm. That's kind of, I think, an important subtext yes. yeah. to, no, to contextualize that yeah. discussion. Yeah, absolutely right. And the Japanese said the British and the French took over empires. The Americans killed all their native, well, not all, but they, 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 they you know, took over their, their indigenous lands. They took over Hawaii. We're doing the same. And we're, you know, they've got their empires, we want ours, and why shouldn't we? Um, and you know, I think there, there is a lot. I mean, you could, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the Japanese argument, in a way. Um, and they saw China very much as the British and the French saw the Middle East, as, as filled with people who couldn't rule themselves, and so they'd do it for them. I have no doubt that we could continue this conversation forever, but uh, I'm also conscious that lots of people in the audience will have questions. So at this point, uh, I'd like to thank Margaret briefly. And, um, thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. And open the floor for questions. We've got some, okay. starting with you. Gentleman here in the front. Thank you very much, Professor McMillan. My question is about the Kurds. Uh, I understand that today there are about 25 million Kurds between Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Now, I don't know if my numbers are correct, but there are a huge <coughs> number of people, a single ethnic group. How is it that they never had a country um, as, as uh, chaotic or as dysfunctional as it may have been given the background, how is it that they were completely left out? Well, I think what's so interesting is, is the ways in which nations develop. And what we saw in the 19th century was people beginning to identify themselves as beginning to belonging to one nation or another. But this is a very recent development in human history. And the idea that a nation then should have its own country is, is something that really, I think, only enters for most of us, most of the world, discussion in the 19th century. And different ethnicities or nations develop at different times. If you looked at France in 1800, it's been estimated that only a tenth of the French people actually spoke French. You know, they spoke things like Provence, they spoke Breton, they spoke German, they spoke a host of different languages, Languedoc. And it was really, I think, partly Napoleon who helped to create a sense of a French nation, partly through education, partly through centralization, and something was also stirring among the French people themselves. The Kurds were not a people who were yet, I think, fully conscious of themselves as a people at the beginning of the 20th century. They were divided, the term Kurd means mountain people, and they were divided among different clans, different religions, um, even language, you know, the, the idea that there is a common, clearly identifiable set of characteristics that makes a Kurd is something that developed much later. Um, these, these were peoples who hadn't yet, I think, developed a sense of nationality which encompassed a lot of them, uh, perhaps because they hadn't needed to. I mean, they, they lived in worlds in which they weren't consulted and their views weren't consulted. You were beginning to get the development of Kurdish nationalism, a sense that there is something different about this, and, and yet we have something in common, even though we live in different parts. We, we are scattered um, from what in those days was Persia through into the Ottoman Empire. But at the time of the Paris Peace Conference, Kurdish nationalism was very much a middle-class phenomenon, um, there were few Kurdish intellectuals in exile in places like Istanbul, Constantinople, as it was called then. And so there wasn't a broadly based nationalist movement. And that was going to develop partly as a result of what happened 
in the First World War and after. I mean, this was something that, that grew. And the Kurds were referred to in the Treaty of Sevres, the one that didn't last with the failing Ottoman Empire. They were promised an autonomous region, not a state, an autonomous region where they would you know, manage their own affairs, rather like I suppose the British envisaged Northern Ireland as being something of an autonomous region within um, the United Kingdom uh, or Scotland, you know, with, with certain of its own laws and certain of its own ways of doing things. And it was really in the, in the 20s and 30s that a sense of Kurdish nationalism began to become very deeply rooted. And the tragedy for the Kurds, I think, is that they, they remain divided among themselves. I mean, there are two, at least two main political groupings who are at loggerheads. But their tragedy, of course, is that they live in a dreadful neighborhood. I mean, they, they are scattered, as you rightly pointed out, among four different states, all of which are determined to suppress Kurdish nationalism. And I think their fate is, is, is not a happy one. I mean, they've been severely suppressed in Iran. They have been treated, um, well, the, at the moment they have a sort of autonomy in Iraq, but um, previous governments, Saddam Hussein treated them appallingly. Um, the Turks are deeply hostile to any notion of Kurdish nationalism, as are the Syrians. And I think it is, it is a tragedy. I mean, the Kurds themselves, if you go on to their websites of their various national movements, always refer back to the Treaty of Sevres as the moment in which they were promised an independent state which is slightly stretching the truth, but for them it is an important milestone because they are recognized as a separate people. But there wasn't a f sufficiently strong Kurdish force, either in numbers or, or in terms of power, in 1919 for anyone to pay any attention to them. And one of their other tragedies is they had no protectors. They had no one who really cared about them. You know, unlike, for example, the Poles, whose cause was a, was a very um, popular and international one. Very few people had heard of the Kurds and nobody knew much about them. I mean, there's still not much written on the Kurds in English. I mean, there's one standard history of Kurdistan, but there's a bit more been done more recently. But it's, there are people who, who I think uh, suffer a, tra a terrible tragedy. And it's very difficult to see any independent Kurdish state emerging just because of where they are. I have this gentleman here on my list. Um, just in relation to the national self-determination of the non-European peoples that came into Paris, the Wilsonian moments, my understanding is that they looked to America in the guise of Wilson because America had emerged or was emerging and that the promise was that America would somehow challenge the European empires. Now, it was a premature moment, obviously, and they were going to be disappointed. But do you think that really spurred these countries on later on to press for their case harder, that they would never trust the European empires ever again. You mentioned Ho Chi Minh. He put his faith somewhat in, in Roosevelt during the Second World War, because yeah. he had been at the peace conference. Yeah. So the understanding was that the Americans somehow, given their history, were supposed to be anti-imperial. Now, it wasn't quite true. <laughs> but do you think that really was the beginning of this post-Second post World War national liberation push around the world. Yeah. I th I th I, I, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I think the, the origins of, of nationalism in the European empires come from a number of sources, many of them from, from you know, European examples, actually. I mean, the French Revolution was something that, that did have resonance, certainly in the French colonies, and... The influence of, of Bolshevism was huge. Once Russia had its revolution, I mean, this was a revolutionary state that emerged in the, in the form of the Soviet Union, which was deeply opposed to Western imperialism. In fact, set up um, a university 
for example, called the University of the Toilers of the East to train um, young nationalists from, from European colonies and, and which made a great deal, set up a communist international which had branches all through the non-European world as well as the European world. So I think there were a number of different sources that fed into um, the thinking and the hopes of nationalists in, in various non-European countries. And of course, they drew on their own traditions as well. And they drew on their own histories. I mean, in India, they had a very long history of running the, their, own, their own affairs and their own heroes. And so I think it's a combination of things happening. But the United States certainly, I think, is seen as a beacon of hope. It was a country that was founded on an act of revolution against a European power. And it was a country whose leaders had always said very specifically that they disapproved of colonies. However, they did, as you, I think, hinted at, um, take quite a few themselves. Um, you know, if you talk to Puerto Ricans or Hawaiians or Cubans or people from the Philippines, I mean, they, they have a different view of the benevolence of the United States. Um, and I do think the United States is, is always in a slightly difficult position here. I think they failed sometimes to recognize the ways in which they have behaved as imperialists. And Wilson himself is an interesting figure because he was a southerner. And he thought that people of color were inferior. And so he talked a lot about self-determination, but he was like a lot of, I think, people at the time from the developed world. He simply thought that they weren't ready in the non-developed world to have independence. And in some cases, he doubted they ever would be ready for independence. And his own views on American blacks are really a blot on his record. I mean, he, he in fact, reintroduced some segregationist measures into the, into the American federal service and certainly had no faith that black leaders would ever really be able to you know, become part of, of, of white society and that blacks would ever be fully equal citizens. So Wilson's own record, I think, his, his rhetoric was wonderful. And I think the example of the United States was often inspirational. But sometimes if you look a bit closer, um, the example is not quite as clear cut as you might think. Now, we've got two questions from row three. We may as well take them together. Um, and just curious, um, how influential do you think Versailles was into the rise of Nazism and, in fact, into the outbreak of the Second World War? I don't... Th I th it Clearly, it plays a part. But what I've always found is too neat is when people say what happened in 1919 created 1939. I mean, it's like saying 1989 was the end of the Cold War. That's what created Donald Trump or that's what created Boris Johnson, or that's what created Brexit. You know, a lot has happened between 1989 and 2019. And I think the same thing is true of, of Europe and Germany between 1919 and 1939. Certainly German nationalists made great play with the Treaty of Versailles, with the injustice of the Treaty of Versailles, the punitive burden of reparations which Germany was meant to pay for, for, for the war damage it had caused um, in the course of the war. But that wasn't the only thing that went wrong. And I think if you, look at, if you actually look at the 1920s, which of course Robert has done, and other historians I think are doing, we have tended, I think, too much to see the 1920s as a brief, brief breathing space before everything goes to hell in a handbasket and we get the Second World War. And of course, the 1920s are very interesting because they were certainly troubled. But there were also, there were also signs that things were calming down, that things were getting better. I mean, Germany did become part of the international community again. It did join the League of Nations. The reparations bill was negotiated down twice, 
And it did seem as if possibly reparations would eventually be removed as a source of international tension. There were various moves made towards disarmament. There was a very important pact, people thought at the time, and it's still with us, called the, the Pact of Paris or the Brion-Kellogg Pact, which nations who signed it, and they, that included Germany and, and eventually 61 other nations, um, nations who signed it agreed not to use war as an instrument against each other. World trade was picking up again. World production was picking up again. So, you know, I think if you look at the 20s, you could see that the, the, it wasn't all grim. And the danger is, you, if you look back, you see the shadow cast by the 1930s. My own sense is that what really began to go wrong was the Great Depression. And those three years between about 1990, 1929 and 1932 were dreadful for both the world and for domestic politics. They, they turned nations inwards, um, peoples, uh, governments, central banks adopted policies which made the situation worse. Certain countries were very badly hit, huge numbers out of, out of work. And there was a tendency for people to assume that capitalism and democracy had failed. And the radical parties on both the right and the left, the communists and the various forms of fascism increased in membership. Even so, I think Hitler and the Nazis, and we were talking about this earlier, need not have got into power. They, they had peaked, as far as we can tell, in, in their popularity. The, the last free election held in Germany, their share of the vote had gone down. And I think if Germany had had better leadership and if some of the, 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 the folly, uh, I'm just going to say the fools, and I think they were, the, the, some of the German right, some of the industrialists, the people around Hindenburg, the president, um, some of the German right wing who thought they could use the Nazis. They thought they could take Hitler. They had contempt for him. They thought he was a corporal. He was lower class. He spoke with a funny Austrian accent. They thought they could take him and use his support and control him. And when they didn't need him, they'd squeeze him dry and throw him away. Well, of course, they didn't know what they were dealing with. But they invited him into power. And I think, you know, I think it's, it's a combination of, of the Great Depression um, leading to political polarization and, and to despair about institutions, but I think if you actually look at the steps by which Hitler got into power, there were some very, very stupid mistakes made, very stupid decisions made. Um, now, I think it really does matter sometimes who is in a position to make these decisions, and I'm a, unfortunately, people making those decisions in that crucial period when Weimar failed and, and Hitler was invited into power with the Nazis, you had people thinking in a very short-sighted way, thinking they could use him. Yeah. I think we have time for... One, two more questions. Two, I'll make it two. Okay. I was very interested in what you just say about the Middle East because I, I worked in uh, the Lebanon and Jordan and when you talked about the Lebanese and the Iraqis having a reasonably strong sense of, of nationhood, and it's the first time I ever heard anyone say that, that is true. Hmm. And yet, with modern media and the warfare out there and whatever, it has a tendency to simplify everything in that they're either Shiites, they're Muslims, they're, they're Sunnis, they're this, yeah. they're that. So the question really is, modern media does not help yeah. an interpretation of some of the problems, yeah. including uh, yeah. Kurds and whatever. Yeah. Well, Thank and I, I quite agree, and I think what doesn't help is people don't bother to inform themselves about the, about, the, about the history of the place. And so you get commentators in the press saying, oh, well, the Shi and the Sunni have always fought each other. You know, they've always done that. You know, I've got friends from the Middle East who say that the difference between Shia and Sunni used to be really less than the difference between Protestants and Catholics. I mean, I grew up in Toronto where Protestants and Catholics went to separate schools. 
and they didn't marry each other, or very rarely married each other. Apparently, in, in, you know, in places like Iraq, I've had friends who say, you know, my aunt married a Shi, my uncle married a Sunni, that was okay, you know, it was no big deal. Um, you know, so I, I think you know, we, we, we tend to oversimplify, and we tend to listen to those people who say, well, they've always been like that. You know, one of, I think, a very dangerous book on, on the Balkans was, was written by someone called Robert Kaplan, called Balkan Ghosts, which basically said they've always been like that, they've always fought each other. And it was, the, I think, the one book that Bill Clinton read on the Balkans, um, <laughs> which made him reluctant to go and get involved because he said they've always been like that. No, so I think we, we fall into these very easy assumptions about people and we need to look much more about how they actually interact with each other. And you know, this idea that these divisions are deep and unbridgeable is simply not true. Um, you know, they can become deep and unbridgeable, but they have been a great many times in human history. And it's the same thing with the, pr the presence of, of Jews and Muslims in European societies. You know, there have been times when we've all got on quite well, and then there have been times when we haven't. And, and you know, some of this, I think, is, is made by humans. You know, you get political leaders coming along and say, you can't trust them. You know, they, they, they eat different food to, to us. And, and the, it's a magnif Freud called it the narcissism of small differences. And these can be magnified, but you know, on the whole, I think we, our tendency is to get on with each other and muddle along. Um, and that's certainly true in Iraq, I think, in the Middle East, and I'm glad you've encountered that as well. Now, the festival director's uh, signaling that unfortunately we're out of time, and who oh. am I to argue with Okay, him? sorry. Um, so, but I'd like to... Uh, <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.